TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva! You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, Worklifers, it's Adam Grant. Welcome back to Taken for Granted, my podcast with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist, and this series is about rethinking assumptions we often take for granted about how we work, lead, and live. Today's guest is Esther Duflo, the MIT economist who won a Nobel Prize in 2019, along with two of her peers, Michael Kramer and Abhijit Banerjee, her husband. Esther was tenured in her 20s and has done groundbreaking experiments to fight poverty in the developing world. She's the co-founder and co-director of JPAL, a poverty action lab. She's a prolific writer and widely cited scholar, and she served on the Global Development Council at the White House. Her work challenges conventional wisdom about what motivates people, how to break glass ceilings, and what it takes to solve big problems. Fantastic. Esther, it's great to meet you virtually. Nice to meet you. How did you end up becoming so passionate about studying the developing world? So I think it started relatively early. I grew up in a very uh, sheltered, intellectual, middle-class life uh, with uh, my mother being a doctor, my father being a professor. But the one sort of uh, wrinkle to that or uh, slight difference to that is my mother was uh, and still is uh, very active in uh, organizations of doctors dealing with kids, victims of war. And therefore, she spent quite a bit of time in various countries, uh, starting with uh, Moroccan Sahara and then uh, in El Salvador and uh, in places that were uh, dealing with various kinds of crises, usually man-made. And when she came back from the trips, she she always organized a little slideshow from us. We had these slideshows that looked like, you know, actual little squares, if you remember those, probably not. And, oh, uh, of course I do. And we would uh, watch them and she would explain to us what was happening and we would... Um, and then she would also say, this is your contribution to, to these kids that have a life that is so much less good than yours. And frankly, I thought this was pretty minimal as a contribution. And and, and from from then on, I I kept sort of comparing my life to the life of the, of the kids that I saw in these pictures and... And thinking that it gave me a sort of uh, responsibility to do something about it. What this something was, was very ill-formed and unclear uh, until much later. So what happened that led you to get excited about economics as a, a tool for tackling poverty? Because it's not the first place that I would have looked. No, it's, it really isn't. So, so I had this idea that one day I would make a difference. And for some reason, I had ruled out being a doctor. Um, maybe related to seeing my mother's lifestyle. And then I, but I thought maybe I would do politics. and But all of this was a, a little bit vague. So what, really what I was doing is being a good student and on a sort of a track to become an academic. I like history, so maybe I thought maybe I'll be a historian. And um, 
uh, all the while a little bit forgetting or living to some later day, this ambition to perhaps do something about changing the world. And then I discovered economics by uh, chance, by complete chance. I thought it was unreasonable to, to study just history. And I needed to have some complement to it, simply because I had always been fascinated by history and I thought it was very dangerous to be guided by your 80-year-old self for your career choices. <laughs> so I figured, <laughs> let me do something else too, in case this whole history thing doesn't work out. And I picked economics, uh, number one, because it, it seemed compatible with history, and number two, because the, the professor was charismatic and interesting. But then when I started studying it, I hated it. I thought it was completely irrelevant that it was an, a, a lame effort to put some equations on to describe people's behavior in a way that nobody believed, least of all the people who were trying to teach it, that the math was not interesting, that it was not describing anything. So it was very clear to me after one year of economics that that was it. But then I was left in an uncomfortable position because... By that time, I was living the gilded life of sort of the elite French student, paid to study in a very intellectual, rarefied environment. You know, I had everything to be happy, and I felt very un uncomfortable being so comfortable. Saying, like, I'm so far from what I wanted to do. Like, I'm not changing anybody's life. And what I'm doing, if I become a historian, I will not change anybody's life that way. So I thought I had to make some sort of a break, and I, I left for Russia, For a year, my, my school had an exchange program. And there in Russia, I started uh, doing gig work for economists. Uh, translation, uh, running around, doing this, that, and the other. And there I realized that economists have so much power. I mean, I, I, academic economists, because they are listened to uh, by policymakers. And it was like a mixture of admiration and, and, and horror, <laughs> because this was Russia at the, in the transition. And the economists there were really yield, you know, defining the course of, of, of this country uh, by the way they did privatization, the shock therapy and the like, based on, I felt, very little knowledge. And so this really gave me my course. I said, well, on the one hand, I'm going to try to acquire a little bit more knowledge on what I'm going to talk about. But on the other hand, then someone will probably be listen, uh, be ready to listen to me. And that's really when I decided to, to come back. I also happened to meet Thomas Piketty in Russia, who, who was teaching uh, at MIT at the time. And he told me that at MIT, I would learn a much more practical economics than what I had learned in France. So all of this clicked nicely. I went to MIT, took my first development economics class and realized, ah, This is how I'm going to go back to, you know, what had been my mission from the get-go. Wow. Okay, there's so many things I already want to follow up on there. The, the first one is, uh, you said it's dangerous to follow the career advice of your, or pursue the career interests of your eight-year-old self. So I, I had a similar experience with my, I guess, my early exposure to economics. When I was a sophomore in college, I was, I declared a joint major between psychology and economics. And I knew I wanted to understand human behavior, and I thought the two worlds would be great to try to marry. And then I showed up in my first economics class, and the professor wrote on the board that quality of life was a function of consumption and savings. I was like, that is the dumbest equation I've ever seen. My happiness has very little to do with how much I consume and how much I save. Like, do economists understand at all what people care about and what drives the quality of our lives? And... I'm wondering if I gave up on economics too soon. Do you think I should have, I should have rethought my, my distaste for those equations? Yeah, I think you should have, but I understand why you didn't. And I, I, I think many, many students have exactly the same experience. I had the same experience and I had given up. It's only because I needed to make a little bit of money in Russia and because I, uh, I, I thought it would be a way of being closer to what was happening that I got back in the proximity of economists. Many people stop because that's what they're exposed to. Or maybe if they go to the second lesson and they start learning that, that a country's worth is related to their GDP or, or some such. And then I'm like, no, you know, people rightly conclude that it's not for them. And I think that's, that's an error of 
it's not even an error of the economics profession. It's an error of the way economics is taught. Because if you look at what economists do, it's so varied and it's so diverse. And, uh, you know, there are still people who, who write down those equations, but there are many people who do other things, like the behavioral economics you would have pre- perhaps have done if you had continued in the field. Uh, but you have to have completed and survived two years of, of, of this bullshit to get to it. And, and most people don't. And that's why now, uh, this year, for example, at MIT, I teach two classes that are uh, targeted to freshmen. Right? I want to get them right out of high school before they've done any economics uh, to, to teach them you know, how you use economics to, to, to combat hunger or low education or to vaccinate people against COVID. And I also want to teach them how we use economics to think about racism or climate change or, or that kind of things. And, you know, granted, it's not going to be as uh, rigorous and perfect as it could be, but at least it's, you know, perhaps going to give them a taste of what's the end of, of the journey and give them a reason to undertake the journey in the first place. They are clearly very lucky to have you doing that, and I'm sure they're excited to to learn from a Nobel laureate, too. I think your your arc is very different from the way that I normally envision a career, right? So, in you know, in my case, uh, I, I was sort of, you know, I, I guess I wasn't quite disgusted with economics, but I was disappointed with what I learned and how oversimplified it, it seemed. And by contrast, I had fallen in love with psychology, and I knew almost on first sight that I wanted to be an organizational psychologist. It seemed like you had a, a different trajectory that you had to fall out of hate with economics before you fell in love with it. How did that happen? I mean, at some level, obviously, you were paying attention because economists had power, but then what shifted? What, what actually lit the spark or, or at least got you to say, maybe this isn't as terrible as I thought? It's really uh, getting to, the, to this end of the journey. When I was in Russia and I saw the, what the economists were doing, I could, I could picture myself doing something not similar because I didn't like the, the, the type of macro-scale advice they were giving, but at least related in that I would put my science uh, to the service of something useful for people, which is what these economists in Russia thought they were doing. So after this one year of hitting economics, when I came back to economics, I was already a graduate student. And the easy math was replaced by reasonably hard math and the, a complete abstraction by some effort at looking at the world. And therefore, you know, armed on the one hand uh, with this sense that this was all, you know, there was a plan, there was a logic, I knew where I was going and I was going to do work that was ultimately interested to, interesting to me, but I had to learn, you know, to do my skills. Uh, and on the other hand, with the fact that quickly enough, the scales, you know, turn into arpeggios and things that were intellectually motivated uh, gave me the, the, all the drive and energy I needed to, you know, fall in love <laughs> again to the subject I had fallen out of it uh, relatively recently. I, I think it's, it's so interesting then to see that, that not only in some ways did it take you a while to decide that economics were for, were for you, but that when you finally did make that commitment, you took on a field that almost didn't exist yet, right? As, as far as I know, when you started doing development economics, that was not a real option for doctoral students. Did people think you were insane? It was an option, but it was a very, 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 very marginal option. Now, where I was very lucky is that by the time I got to MIT, I already knew I was going to do development economics. So if nobody had done development economics, I would have done it anyway, because I was, you know, going back, like returning to... Uh, to to my plan from the beginning. But in fact, when I arrived, Michael Kramer and Abhijit Banerjee were teaching and they had done that leap of sort of going out of their well-established field, uh, macro for Michael and uh, a theory for Abhijit and decided that they were going to teach development, which they were making up as they went along. And they were making up with us. And it was about, I don't know, five or six of us students in the room. And it's also exhilarating to see a field being created in front of your eyes and with your own inputs. And yeah, it was a bit, you know, people thought it was insane in the sense that they were like, you're a good student, you know, you could just get a great job if only you did a normal field. And I thought, well, that's not, (laughs) I didn't come here to get a great job. (laughs) I came here to study development economics. And uh 
and it was not even a question for me because I knew why I was there and I was going to do it regardless. So if we fast forward, I don't know, a couple decades, um, you you wrote a book about radically rethinking poverty. And I think it's it's one it's a wonderful summary of, of so much of the research you've done. But it's also a perfect fit for this show because this show is about rethinking assumptions that we take for granted. So I'd love, just for starters, if you could talk a little bit about what common assumptions about poverty are overturned by your work. So I think uh, depending on uh, the flavor of the month, there are any number of wrong assumptions about poverty. And what's interesting is that they are very strongly held at the moment in time, and then they are kind of, the, you know, next year it's another one. So the one when I grew up and that I grew up with, and in fact I grew up believing when I was, you know, uh, naively thinking I was going to save the world uh, one day, was that the poor were uh, all desperate and they, they were all on the margin of starvation. And, you know, I, I grew up with Live Aid and with uh, uh, the French version of that uh, and my mom's pictures from the desert and kids with distended bellies and uh, very, very harrowing uh, uh, lives and very little choices. So that's one. Of course, there are people who live like that, that's for sure. Usually that's caused by war. And uh, fortunately, that's relatively uh, a small fraction of the world. Uh, but many people live in poverty and live very different lives where a lot of things is happening and they're actually active and they have a lot of choices and they make good choices and bad choices and they have a fair amount of freedom. At the other extreme, another common assumption about the poor is that uh, the poor are all, uh, you know, Bill Gates in waiting. They, they dream of being entrepreneurs and of uh, taking their destiny in their hands and and so on and so forth. And all we need to do is to provide the capital and step out of the way. So these are two of them. Other ones that are quite frequent about less in Western country towards people in poor countries, but a lot in Western country towards people in poverty in Western countries, is the idea that the poor are fundamentally lazy, something got wrong with them. Sometimes it's, you know, made a little bit more politically correct by saying it's because of their circumstances. But you always come back to that, that fundamentally they don't really want to get out of it. So the poor are slothful, lazy, etc. That's a third assumption, which is not always expressed in this way, but fundamental in guiding policies. So th those are some of the three that we were trying to fight against with Abhijit Banerjee. I want to talk about the last one in particular. Um, in, in psychology, when we try to explain why people consider the poor lazy, we often think about research on the belief in a just world, that people don't want to believe that they live in an unfair world. And so they rationalize people's condition as a function of what they deserve, or, you know, at least, like you said, their circumstances, um, to, to say, look, this isn't wrong, and I'm not contributing to an ongoing injustice. Do you see it similarly? Do you think about it differently as an economist? Yeah, I think this is a part of the this is definitely a part of the of the story. Uh, for our next book, we did a small uh, polls of people where we asked them if they they were for example a universal basic income, they would stop working. And most people say that they won't stop working. And then uh, half the people we asked them instead if they were a universal income would other people stop working? And they say that the other people would stop working. And likewise, for uh, you know, when we ask people whether uh, um, health insurance without work requirement, uh, does that make you lazy? That doesn't make me lazy. Would that make other people lazy? That would make other people lazy, etc. So this, this belief that uh, others are much more sensitive to financial incentive than I am is pretty, uh, pretty frequent. And I think the belief in the just, just world is definitely a part of it. It's also, a, a, you know, to be honest, a pretty convenient belief because it, it justified not doing very much. Because if you tried to intervene, then you would actually rob the poor of the incentives to, you know, better themselves. You know, you would make them slothful by making their lives too easy and rob them of the American dream. There is also the outside world. And I think that belief... Uh, of the poor being slothful is also continuously repeated by by uh, 
the media, by policymakers. Our French president did a whole like uh, beyond the scene take uh, to look cool. And then his idea of looking cool was to say on ca- to re- rehearse on camera a speech that said uh, uh, giving pe- poor people money uh, destroys their life by making them lazy. So I think it's just very present. So I don't think it's just motivated belief. I also think it's it's what's in the air, and it it takes an enormous amount of uh, convincing to to move people out of this impression. And uh, and some people will not move out of this impression. There was a very funny uh, headline in the Wall Street Journal when uh, several studies appear apropos the CARES grant, which is the, the 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 help during COVID. So there was a worry that the help was too generous and people would stop working. Then people then there was about a half a dozen academic studies showing that in fact not at all. And the Wall Street Journal says. Paying people not to work will lead them not to work. Everybody knows that, except Yale economists, it seems. <laughs> and uh, the, the title was uh, Economics versus Common Sense. So this, this, this ideology is so strong that like, if it's faced with data and facts, then the facts must be wrong. The, the ideology is, is right. So we also live in that world. We do. So tell us a little bit more about the facts. Um, what... What is, in your view, the most convincing evidence that whether it's, you know, a CARES Act or universal basic income, that that doesn't make people lazy? So there is plenty of evidence. Uh, First, uh, the CARES Act itself, uh, which, again, uh, it was $600 of weekly of unemployment insurance. It it was studied by half a dozen different teams and they all came to the conclusion that it didn't have any impact on uh, labor supply. Um, that's the most recent piece of evidence and extremely striking in a way. Then uh, from all over the world, in particular, all over the developing world, there has been a series of uh, cash transfers ex- experiments. Uh, they are usually conditional on health or education behavior, but not on work. And uh, Abhijit Banerjee and Ben Olken and Rima Hanna put, took all of these studies together. And a lot of them were done in these very rigorous randomized controlled trials. So you can compare the exactly comparable people who got this very generous support and people who didn't. And if you look at their labor supply, their probability of working is just the same. And the number of hours worked per week is just the same. And this is done in studies all over the world. So that's another example. Then examples closer to home in the U.S. is the the, the, the Alaska uh, um, and grant, petrol grant doesn't make people lazy and and so on and so forth. So the evidence like keeps coming. And in fact, I haven't seen so far evidence that we're lining up strongly in the other direction. So what are the missing motivations that aren't accounted for when when we assume that, you know, that that giving people cash essentially is is going to decrease their motivation to work? What what do you see as the reasons why they keep working and sometimes even work harder? Yes. So the everybody has in mind uh, a utility function very much like the one that your uh, professor put on the board uh, in your first uh, lecture of economics, which is, oh, what people want is money and and rest. But in fact, people want more than money. And in particular, one thing which kind of ties everything nicely together is dignity. And what does dignity mean is a sense that your, uh, your life is worth living and that other people consider that your life is worth living. So it's a job that makes sense. Uh, it's an integration in a social network. It's a position in society. It's friends to talk to, and so on and so forth. And in, in our societies, and in most societies, it comes through, through a job. And it comes through a job that, you know, you see a path with some progress. doesn't have to be that you want to become the CEO, but it means that you see what you're doing and why. And uh, that that goes for a lot. Then the other thing is, you know, so people want to continue the the, the, the life they have with the friends they have. That that has a series of implications, but beyond the fact that people would be would rather work than not work. Another one is they would rather stay in place than move. Another thing we kind of assume is if people don't want to move for a job, they must be they must be lazy. Because, hey, it would be so simple. You know, you've lost your job making furniture in North Carolina. Why don't you go to New York and you can be a security guard in a furniture shop? 
And there you go, you know, the great promise of trade is being accomplished. But the fact is, by doing that, you're losing everything that makes life worth living. Your extended family, your support network, your house, and probably a lot of square foot of housing, because you, you're not going to find the same house in New York. Uh, your career progression in your job, uh, and uh, even the sense that you had a reason doing this particular job as opposed to something else. That reminds me of some research that Terry Mitchell and his colleagues did on what they call job embeddedness, which is the idea that if we want to predict people's turnover over time, we need to pay attention to their fit with the organization as their alignment between their values and their interests and their skills and and what they do and where they belong. We need to look at their links to people and we need to look at what they would have to sacrifice to walk away. And one of the things they found in the research was that um, you had to look at fit, links, and sacrifice in a community, not just in a job, to determine whether people would really walk away. And it sounds like you've arrived at a very similar set of conclusions in a, from a very different perspective. Partly because we are looking at the same data and uh, presumably with as an open mind as we can. So back on the, the point of dignity, the desire to be respected, um, also the meaning that you spoke about, the, the motivation to make a difference. When I was doing my doctoral dissertation, I had done some experiments with university fundraising callers, and I found that just randomly assigning them to meet one scholarship recipient who had benefited from their work was enough to substantially increase the number of calls they made, the minutes they spent on the phone, ultimately the money that they raised. And one of the first questions that I got, uh, I think it, it must have been in my first job talk, was, well, but, but how does showing people the meaning of their work and, and seeing who they help, how does that compare against a financial incentive? And I thought it was such a complicated question to answer because I don't know what dose of meaning is equivalent to, you know, a $100 reward. And the closest I ever got to trying to compare was thinking through, could I design interventions that were equal cost? So whatever amount of money financial incentives would require, could I substitute that for a, a chance to see the real impact of your work? As, as a Nobel laureate who spent your whole career doing the kinds of field experiments that I was grappling with in that moment, how would you think about comparing the effects of incentives and, and meaning and impact? Yeah, that's a great question. One way to answer this question is that, you know, why do you want to know? Uh, it, it's often, in some sense, uh, free to, to give meaning. Or if you, uh, if you organize the job um, accordingly... And in, so, in some other sense, sometimes it's just completely impossible. So the price per unit of meaning is a bit hard to uh, is a bit hard to to equalize from context to context. The reason why it's not an absurd question to ask is that um, magnitudes do matter, and uh, not just science. And that's something that that policymakers forget often, and, and they get this like vague intuition that something works or it doesn't work. But without thinking, you know, how much, how much does it cost them to deliver that thing that work? And ultimately, when you have to make policy choices, it's, it's pertinent and important. I agree. But what I also found a little bit disconcerting about it was the implication that if, if meaning was as powerful or more powerful, we could just stop incentivizing people and compensating them for their work. And I, I didn't want to give any, any manager an excuse to substitute one for the other. Ah, that's a great point. Uh, I don't think that would work. <laughs> Eventually, people need to eat too. <laughs> Unfortunately, whenever there is a possibility to make money, then this 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 wage is being exploited. So I do think that uh, that there is a way in which managers do attempt to provide uh, substitutes for uh, for money by giving meanings. But it's not always... It, I, I don't think you can fake it for very long. I certainly hope not. We, we actually had some managers who did try to fake it. And they said, look, I'm just going to tell the story of the scholarship student. And I did not get the same effects in that version of the field experiment because, in part, employees were suspicious. Right? They, they looked at that and said, hmm... I think my boss might have an ulterior motive for trying to inspire me, and it doesn't have the same meaning to me as when I actually meet the person face-to-face. So I tried this experiment, or some version of this experiment in India, in a different context. Uh, we had done some work on uh, uh, women as policymakers. So in India, they have a policy that forces uh, uh, people to elect a woman uh, every third election. And uh, this is randomly assigned, so you can compare the places that had a woman and places that didn't. And uh, we compare them in the, in the next series of elections. And what we show is that 
a woman is more likely to women are more likely to run and women are more likely to be elected if they had an experience of a woman as policymakers. So this is good. Since then, we've shown that this is uh, this comes in part from uh, less prejudices against women's ability to be leaders and. Um, we were interested to see, can we shortcut this process by just telling some people that women are actually just as good as men? And so we did an experiment where we had, uh, uh, just before an election, we had actors doing a campaign on motivating electors in general. And in some version, they were showing the performance of women that were elected in other places. And that had zero impact. So we came to the same conclusion that actually you have to do your experiences yourself. You, there is no substitute by someone trying to explain them to you. Perhaps for the reason you're saying that I think people quickly glaze over as soon as you're trying to, uh, to, to kind of preach to them. I, I think that is totally fascinating. And I guess, you know, actually, that was, that was another question I wanted to ask you about is when, I, when you look at your research on women in leadership, um, I think the... The role modeling effect is obviously powerful. Um, you've seen that girls are most like more likely than to to rise into leadership roles. That voter attitudes change, right? When you have women randomly assigned to these leadership roles, but I wonder how you reconcile that with research on moral licensing, which suggests that once people have supported one woman, they can essentially say, "See, I'm not sexist," and then they don't feel obligated to support another one. And that means there's a risk that when the first woman breaks the glass ceiling, it doesn't move people's attitudes over time. Well, what's interesting in this case is that uh, the first woman that broke the glass ceiling, uh, they were not brought in there by the voters' will. They were put in place there. So the blessing was broken from above with a big hammer, not from, you know, (laughs) thousand paper cuts from below. And so, in fact, the voters hate the woman who is the first, the trailblazers. They have very negative impressions against them. And those trailblazers have a miserable time and they don't run again, in fact. Because I think people are quite resentful to be forced to to have elected a woman. So it is interesting is that it's almost against their best desires that they actually, they have to... They are forced to realize that actually they, it never occurred to them that the woman could run. They didn't like the idea. Actually, they still don't like the idea. If you ask them, they are absolutely willing to tell you that, no, they don't like the idea that women lead. But at the same time, there is another thing that is happening, which is they so much dislike the idea of having a woman leader that they never experienced it. And because they never experienced it, they also thought genuinely that women were incompetent. And when they are forced to have a woman leader, they still don't like the idea, but they are forced to realize that actually women are just equally competent. And, and, and so this is, I think, the mechanism in this case. It doesn't mean that you don't have what you're talking about, which is, oh, my best friend, my best friend is a Jew or something like that. Wow. That's in, in some ways encouraging, right? That even in the presence of prejudice, you can still improve people's perceptions of, of women's competence. It's also really depressing right? that even after acknowledging that women are just as competent at leadership as men, they still say, I prefer not to have women in leadership roles. Yes, it's, I, I find it more encouraging than depressing because I, I can accept the fact that, uh, you know, machism is going to take some time to go away. And in some sense, you know, I'm more of a pragmatic as long as women can still sort of slowly make their way and show their competence and, uh, and, and, and make a difference, then, you know, the fact that some grumpy men are not happy about it, or even many grumpy men are not happy about it, then doesn't bother me that much. And I think it goes back to another thread of my research, is this idea that uh, the very notion of what preferences mean is, is a bit uninteresting in a way, because people can tell you that they don't like having a woman. That doesn't mean they're not going to vote for them because they think they are competent. So they also try to express something and they maybe try to understand what the social norm is and to conform to it. Uh, but, but maybe these views are less uh, uh, deep than, than people would have you believe. And that the behavior is more fluid. 
And in today's uh, environment where we insist more in the media and, you know, people like you and me insist more on the fact that uh, people are increasingly polarized in terms of their opinions and uh, um, increasingly impossible to move. Uh, what I'm finding instead is that their discourse might be stultified, but not necessarily what they actually do. I, I love this point. One of the things that I have noticed for years in my research is that people assume you have to change attitudes in order to shift behaviors. And very often the reverse is easier. If you can get somebody to, to change their actions or to try out a new path, then you start to activate cognitive dissonance. Okay, well, why did I do that? I must, uh, I must have a slightly more complex attitude than I thought. And you also lead to um, a change in identity. Right. Well, okay. I must be the kind of person who does that sort of thing. And between wanting to rationalize their prior actions and actually learning something about who they are from seeing what they do, sometimes behavior shifts. So, in I guess a concrete example of that is if I go back to the fundraising callers, I was trying to study the mechanisms through which meeting a beneficiary of their work motivated them to work harder and more productively. And I could not get any change in their attitudes in my surveys. I was trying to test whether they, they reported their work being more meaningful. They felt more valued by, you know, by the scholarship students as opposed to devalued by uh, the alumni donors who were screaming at them for interrupting their dinners and hanging up on them. And I just saw no movement. And some of that, I think, is it's just it's harder to measure fine-grained changes in attitudes than very objective, observable behaviors in, you know, in terms of time on the phone. But I think part of it was also that they had to spend a few weeks um, you know, kind of observing themselves, spending that much more time on the job, working harder, working longer, raising more money to, to internalize that, oh, yeah, this job is, is not harassing people over dinner. It's making a difference for students who can't afford school. And it sounds like you've seen a similar dynamic in your research that, that sometimes moving people's behavior is the beginning of changing their attitudes and opinions. Yeah, it's making the motivated beliefs that you were, we were talking about earlier in the interview work for you, in a sense. And it's also recognizing that the beliefs and the attitude and the taste, they are the product of, of many things. They are the product of your environment. They are product of what your friend thinks. They are the product, as you say, about your own perception of what you are doing and why you are doing and your behavior. And they are much more fluid than, than, than we often think as economists, you know, inspired by Becker. We think they are what they are and we take that as, as primitive. And I don't think that's true. And also people just don't know what they believe uh, most of the time. Uh, there are all these psychology experiments that y y I'm sure you know much better than me about people, for example, being influenced by their the, the last number of their social security uh, uh, number uh, when valuing a, a bottle of wine. Uh, if you tell, make them to think about their, the last digit of their social and they are going to value the wine closer to that. If, if they have a high number, they'll give a high price for the wine. If they have a low number, they'll give a low price for the wine. So this shows that on, on, on most things, we just don't know. And a lot of things are complicated, as you say. And so our own notions of what we like or want or need is a little uh, uh, fuzzy. And... Uh, and, and therefore, starting with behavior and starting with, you know, concrete advice as opposed to preaching is uh, can be helpful. In, in, in the context of COVID and polarization, I have a recent example of that. So we did a very large experiment where we sent about 50 million Facebook ads to people before Thanksgiving and Christmas. So 20 million before Thanksgiving and 30 million before Christmas. It was a group of doctors um, who sent this very, very short video asking people not to travel for Thanksgiving or before Thanksgiving and not to travel before Christmas. And we randomized these ads at the geographical level so we can follow the impact on mobility and we can follow the impact on COVID. And what we find is that people were quite a bit less likely to travel at Thanksgiving and at Christmas if they had received our ads. And two weeks later, there is less covid which is, uh, a, you know, a pretty rare example of uh, a non-medical intervention that actually affects COVID. But what's most interesting is uh, that the impact were just as large in heavily Trump country, counties as in democratic counties. 
Uh, and this is something that uh, we didn't necessarily expect because there was this idea, especially after the election, that everything was politicized. In fact, people were responding to our ads. The comments were extremely nasty, usually. But at the end of it, people were just as likely to be responsive to these doctors from MGH telling them they should stay home for uh, uh, for Thanksgiving or Christmas, which which sort of leads me to the belief that people actually will change their behavior if you give them information. The reason why they don't is more maybe that ne they never really heard it because people are in echo chamber, so they never had a chance to, to get the message. Not that when given the information, they, or they, they wouldn't be able to, to, to react to it. I'm struck by the specificity of that request. You're not saying stay home all year, right? You're not threatening people's freedom. You're just saying, you know, it'd be really great if you don't travel during this specific period. Yes, I think this is absolutely a part of it, which is it's not about, uh, and this is something which we found also in working on HIV and AIDS in, in Africa, comparing at some point we sort of run a horse race between the government program, which is basically, uh, it's called ABCD, that's abstain, be faithful, use a condom or you die which is basically prom promoting with teenager complete abstinence on the ground that, you know, that's the safest. Well, that's the safest if you do it. So we tried that and contrasted it with a much more specific advice, which is avoid having sex with older men. Uh, we didn't even say that. We just gave uh, kids information on the prevalence of HIV among younger men, older men and girls. And this was news to the kids because they always thought the, girl, the boys were the dangerous people, not the serious, not the very serious men that paid for their school fees. And we found this to be uh, extremely effective at reducing uh, um, risky sexual behavior, pregnancies, herpes, HIV, and the general, you know, don't go anywhere, etc. strategy to be completely ineffective. Wow. One of the surprising patterns in your data is that I'm thinking about when economists talk about revealed preference. And I'm wondering if, if part of what you're showing is that it's often not until we see ourselves take action that we discover our own preferences, not just reveal them to other people. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely correct. And, uh, and, and people are confused about their own preferences. People are also confused about the preferences of other people. So there is nice work on uh, showing that uh, by Leo Bernstein, for example, showing that that people, for example, Saudi men think that other Saudi men would not approve of wives working. But in fact, themselves, they would approve of wives working. And if you make them, if you make them aware of what the social norm is, uh, then they actually, they say, oh, really? It would be okay for people. Then it's also okay for me. And then that leads them to be more uh, welcoming of their own way of working. That, that I think, is, is really nicely paralleled to some work that Dale Miller did on college campuses with, uh, with students who engaged in binge drinking, thinking that that was the norm. And all of a sudden discovered that not only do other people not want to do it that much, um, but they didn't even know that other people had those preferences. And once they did, all of a sudden they said, oh, well, I don't, like if other people don't think this is cool, I don't think I want to do it either. Yes, exactly. This is, again, something that economists find it difficult to, to accept that uh, you might want to do things because uh, other people do it, because what other people do is a signal of what you might like, not just because you, you might be punished if you don't do the same. Uh, but it's definitely quite powerful. And what this research shows is that people are often quite uh, confused about even their reading of the signal, which is not particularly a surprise when you consider that they don't understand what they, they want themselves. Hey, Rethinking listeners. We're supported by our friends at Working Smarter, a new podcast from Dropbox exploring the exciting potential of AI in the workplace. Working Smarter talks with founders, researchers, and engineers about the things they're building and the problems they're solving with the help of the latest AI tools. Tools that can save them time, improve collaboration, and create more space for the work that matters most. On Working Smarter, hear practical discussions about what AI can do so that you can work smarter too. Listen to Working Smarter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit workingsmarter.ai. 
Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. You know, when I think about the kind of work you do, you know, often going into developing countries and designing very large-scale experiments to try to track the effects of policy changes, um, <laughs> it, it, you know, it sounds, it sounds like it's really fulfilling your, your original goal of having a career that makes a difference. But you wrote at one point, that economists are like plumbers. Can you explain this and help me unpack why plumber is a more desirable way of being in the world than we might assume? Well, plumbers are really helpful. Uh, my father kept saying that uh, the best uh, for me to marry would be uh, doctors or plumbers because you always need these people near you. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> I found neither. I don't know if it's the most, it's a, it's a particularly desirable way of being in the world. It's just a, a, a good analogy for the work that uh, at least some economists should do. Uh, not necessarily all of them, but, uh, you know, the economist that you and, like didn't, you and I didn't like when we first took it is economist that tries to be like physics. It tries to, 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 to come up with laws of the world, laws of motions for the world. Well, you can't do that for the physical world, but for the economic world, you cannot. For the reason we have discussed for the past hour or so, behaviors are complicated. It's going all over the place. We have no control over most of it. Some economists are more like engineers, which is they realize this is complex, but they say, well, let's isolate a situation and construct systems that are robust to to a lot of uh, of things that might happening. So, for example, uh, people who do school choice program, uh, school choice algorithm, try to have program, you know, software system that are robust and uh, uh, that can allocate kids to school in an efficient way. But then once you realize when you leave the lab and you go to the field is that um, the world is so messed up and so confused that you don't have the safety net of a bounded set of assumptions. There is always something that is not what you expected. Details are incredibly important. And you cannot... of course, you, when you when someone comes up with a policy, a policymaker or anyone comes up with a policy or a program, they try to put their best foot forward. They try to make you know to think of the details the way they the best way they can. But then it has to be that we're going to miss some stuff. We can't think about everything properly from the get go, and therefore we have to be like plumbers. We have to be willing to try it out. And if it leaks, to fix it. And if it leaks elsewhere, to fix it. And then do it and do it and try and by trial and error. So the analogy with plumbing is both the fact that uh, we just don't know. We have to try our best. Experience helps, but it's like an experienced plumber is better than a new plumber. But we will still make mistakes. And you have to be quite humble in how you... Um, in observing what you're doing and tinkering with it and, and repairing it. So that's the analogy. Whether it's desirable or not desirable, I don't know. It's just, it, it's just useful. And, and a lot of my work is plumbing. You know, it's not thinking about the huge question of uh, when is the rich world going to give enough vaccine doses that we can actually immunize people in Africa. Although I, I hope someone is thinking about this question, and I'm also trying to think about this question to some extent. But then there is going to be the next question is how to make sure that these doses go to as many people as quickly as possible through efficient campaigns that are logistically well organized and that uh, uh, um, that people trust and won't have hesitancy and they will get vaccinated. That also needs to be done. That's the plumbing part. I love that. I think it's a great description of of some of the probably underappreciated and extremely important work uh, that doesn't always have the glamour attached to it that that draws people to to a new research question or project. One day I was running and I was listening to a podcast and someone uh, was lamenting the fact that uh, after the no- developing the the vaccine in record time we were so slow at putting the campaign in place in the winter of of last year. And I was thinking to myself, I got the Nobel Prize for that. 
<laughs> Someone was saying, so because they were saying, you don't get a Nobel Prize for organizing your logistical campaign. And I thought in some sense, this is precisely what was rewarded. It's also useful. And I think it's recognized to be useful more than before. The world has become a bit more pragmatic. I, I think you did a little bit more than what you just described to earn the Nobel Prize, right? But tell me, tell me how it's affected you, your career and your motivation. Uh, I don't think it affected my motivation. I think my my motivation comes from comes from you know that same that eight year old self is still uh, driving me in that sense. Motivation is really trying to kind of program by program, things by thing, make it work. Uh, it certainly has affected my everyday life in the sense that I get more opportunities to to speak and to to convince various people, policymakers, the public, etc. to to think in this way and to to be pragmatic and efficient in their work, uh, to adopt certain policies, but more importantly, to adopt the kind of the vision of trying to be close to the ground and people's view in designing programs and implement in evaluating them. Sometimes I, I feel a little bit concerned that it's a huge asset and I should do the most of it. And sometimes as I, as I live my day-to-day life in a sort of normal way, doing my teaching, solving some little bits of research or this and that, I'm wondering, oh, am I kind of not making the most of this opportunity to, to have the most influence? Then I feel, oh, well, you know, I've always put one step in front of the other. I should continue. <laughs> I think that that might be one of the, the bigger, maybe, it, well, I don't know. I don't know if I, I would quite go this far, but seems like one of the double-edged swords of American culture is, on the one hand, you're constantly asking, what have I done lately? On the other hand, you're like, oh my gosh, what have I done lately? <laughs> have I already peaked? Yes, I think it's useful to keep in mind what we, what we were discussing uh, a few moments ago, which is the little step that you take every day, you, you feel that the, the, they don't necessarily amount to much. And then it's when you step back and look how, you know, how they accumulated that uh, you feel that, oh, maybe I have, uh, I have contributed. And that's something which I also keep uh, trying to tell, for example, to, to my students is that in particular, when you think about global poverty, it's pretty easy to get discouraged because there is a lot of it. Uh, and sometimes it gets better, but mostly the problems are large. And unless we are willing to, uh, to go, um, um, you know, problem by problem, decompose the, 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 the large problem of poverty into a million smaller problems about how to solve that issue and then that issue and that, and that issue, then we can't really make progress. But then when you do that every day, you might have a sense that you've only dealt with very, very small things. And uh, uh, once in a while, it's good to step back and think, well, that, you know, that amounted to something because you're not the only one doing that. Well, we are extremely grateful that you are willing to do that, right? <laughs> and that you haven't you haven't let the the daily feeling of a drop in the bucket uh, keep you from pursuing what do we do to improve the whole ocean, so to speak. Um, I think it's I mean it's it's remarkable to me that as I look across the different topics you've studied, um, you call yourself a plumber in some ways. I I think that you're the kind of scientist that every social scientist should aspire to be because you've done work that really enriches our fundamental understanding, but also that has tremendous practical impact on the world. And I'm reminded of a, a Donald Stokes book where he talked about Pasteur's quadrant, uh, where he said, look, it's, you, know, you don't have to choose between basic and applied research. It's not a single spectrum. Uh, there are separate ones, right? You can, you can do pioneering work on germ theory and then also figure out how to pasteurize milk. And that's a hell of a career for a scientist. And I, I just think you're an incredible role model for that. And I wonder if there's anything you've learned from having one foot in the world of, of science and the other in the world of policy and practice about how we can all do more of both. Yeah, that's a great question because uh, often that is something that paralyzes uh, people a little bit, that if they do work that's too useful, uh, they might not get the academic recognition that they want. But then if they do work that's too pointed and academic, they might not uh, be as useful in the world. And I think I'm fortunate that at least in the field of development economics, the, the two are aligned. Because if we go back to the plumbing work, you could say, well, you know, it's plumbing. It's like you're really not making science progress too much by doing plumbing. But in fact, 
that's not true because um, often by by addressing a plumbing question, you sort of uncover a whole scientific, like fundamental scientific point that had been kind of overlooked. So for example, to go back to school choice, you could say, well, you know, we have understood the whole thing of how to uh, to have algorithm to uh, allocate kids to school. Uh, this is now all done. The, the, the science actually complicated, but, you know, maybe we thought it was largely done. And then my colleague Parag Patak started to, to go to talk to a lot of, uh, you know, parents and school system to get those systems implemented. And they thought they had the best system. And a feature of the best system is that um, uh, it cannot be manipulated. But whenever you went to school and tried to explain to parents that there is nothing they can do to, you know, be strategic about it, their best bet is just to say what they really want, people didn't believe him. People thought that they still had to be careful, they could game the system, not put their favorite school first in case they don't get a spot, etc., so you might think that's a plumbing problem. You have to just try to convince those, you know, pesky parents that really they have to give their real choice. But in fact, taking the problem seriously, you now have to think about, you know, what's a mechanism that is consistent with this type of preferences. So you now have a mechanism that not only is not manipulable, but that you have to be able to convince someone that it's not manipulable. And what are the properties of this mechanism, etc.? So it opens a new sort of area of thinking that nobody had even thought about until you kind of went in the real world. And um, that's just an example, but a lot of the practices like that, which is the, the real question that people have in the real world, uh, they often uh, force you to think more deeply about your assumptions about behavior. And when you find a result that's the opposite of what you found, what, what you thought, then likewise it makes you think. For example, one of the first uh, randomized evaluation that Michael Kramer did, which sort of started the whole movement of randomized evaluation in development, it was to put textbooks in school. And he picked that example because he wanted something convincing. He wanted to show clearly that you can show that textbooks work and it's so powerful. And then he found the textbook that they were not working. And uh, there was no impact of giving textbooks to kids. And he didn't believe it. So he redid the experiment. Still, he found no impact. He redid the experiment, changed the test scores, etc. Still, he found no impact. So in the process, two things happen. Number one is that he really refined how one has to do this experiment. So we did a lot of learning on the statistics and the practice of experiment, which is fundamental science in a way. And also, because he kept finding no impact, except on the best, best students, that sort of was the first seed in understanding much better what happens to school in developing countries and why they are not more effective and how to make them more effective. And then we can have some thinking on the theory of that, which has history and political science and economics, which leads to, oh, how would we design intervention in this process, in this world, which leads to practical pro problem programs that can be implemented and tested in practice and back and forth in this way. So the, it is exactly like your, your, your pastor example, which is that the, the work keep building on each other's. Sometimes you're on a more applied end of it. Sometimes you move to the more, you know, conceptual end of it. It's often in writing a book or, or writing a review article that you, you make some of your thinking kind of glued together. Each of the individual project is like a, a dot and then it sort of gives you a pointy list painting at the end of it. Um, and that way you, you live in the best of both worlds. But the, the best sort of advice is not to get stressed out of where you Place, place yourself for any given project because it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. There'll be many, many such projects. That, that's extremely helpful. Well, Esther, I want to thank you. This has been such a delightful and fascinating conversation and your curiosity and your knowledge are both just infectious. And I, I think the world is a better place because we have you trying to figure out how to make things better for people who have it the very hardest on earth. So I'm really grateful for everything that you do. Thank you so much. It was very fun. Taken for Granted is part of the TED Audio Collective. The show is hosted by me, Adam Gray. Our team includes Colin Helms, Eliza Smith, Asia Simpson, Michelle Quinn, 
Ben Ben Chang, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced by Cosmic Standard and mixed by Jacob Winnick. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. We'll be back with new episodes in 2022. When people complain that economists are arrogant, your reaction is? Male economists are arrogant. <laughs>